you uh, brought your Bibles with you today, I invite you to open with me once again to 2 Samuel, and today uh, we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, the passage I'm going to read for us is in your bulletins. If you'd like to use one of the uh, blue Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 263. I will several times throughout the sermon make reference to passages that are also found uh, in different places in your bulletin. Now, uh, as I've said already, if you were with us at the beginning, uh, if you were not with us last week, uh, we saw David's great fall into sin uh, with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And as we looked at it, we saw that it was a violation, a violation of covenant law, a violation of covenant love and loyalty, and ultimately a a violation of the Lord of the covenant against God himself. And we see that stated so clearly in Psalm 51 that we've read together. And while when we read this, and, and most of us being familiar with the story or even just reading the story, when we read it, this all seems clear to us, but of course, as we know, and as we look at this, David, however, was blind to it. Or if he wasn't blind to the wickedness, to the violation of it, at least he was hardened to the severity of it. He was trying as best, I suppose, as he could to, to minimize or to ignore that which had actually taken place that he had done. He was trying to cover up the heinousness of his own sin, that is, until this confrontation with the prophet Nathan, which I am about to read for us. Today, we want to consider the, the life of David, the prophetic uncovering of his sin that takes place, the confession that comes forth from him, and then the amazing grace of God. Now, I I will tell you this, as we read through this text today, and particularly as I come towards the ending portion of this text, in addition to the things that I've just mentioned, we're going to see a number of consequences for David's sins that are listed here as well. Uh, I'm not going to preach on those this week, but I'm going to preach on them next week because that theme continues. Well, it continues in one sense through the rest of the book, but it certainly continues strongly through the rest of 18. So I know that it's there. You're going to hear that it's there, and I'm not skipping over it completely. I'm just coming to that portion of it uh, next week so we can kind of look at one thing at a time as we go through here. Uh, Again, we're in deep water. Okay, we are in deep water, cling to Christ as I read this force and as you listen to this sermon this morning. Hear then the living, the life-giving word of the living God. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, 
And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down. Uriah the Hittite, with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin." You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Who is the man? Lord God, help us. Help us, Lord, as we look at this text. Pray that you would be with me as I preach this text that it would be spoken clearly and faithfully to your word as you intend it. And I pray for all of us as we hear it, as I hear it, as each person in this room hears it, that we would hear it correctly and that we would hear it well and that you, Spirit of God, would take it and apply it carefully and lovingly to our lives and to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That was the last phrase of chapter 11. I didn't read it this week for us, but that's where we left off in chapter 11. Now, we know... All of the readers of Samuel and all of the original readers of Samuel, we know what happened to Israel's first king, 
to King Saul when he sinned against the Lord. And if we were to go back and look at Saul's sin against the Lord and compare it to David's sin against the Lord, we might look at these two episodes, or three episodes if you count two of them, in the life of Saul and say, Saul's sin doesn't seem to be as bad as David's sin. And the question becomes, how is God going to respond now to this king and all of his failures, given the fact that this man, David, is the man after God's own heart, the man that God has chosen and appointed to be king, and the man with whom God has entered into all of these covenant promises, this forever eternal covenant that we saw back in chapter 7. And it's not only for him, it's, it's not only for David's salvation that God entered into that covenant, but for that of the world through this son that would come through David. Much is at stake in this passage. On the one hand, we look at this passage and we look at it incredibly personally, and it's, it's absolutely right that we should do that. We look at the story of one man before the Lord being confronted by the heinousness of his sin. Fair enough. But there's more at stake because this isn't just one man. This is a covenant mediator. He's a representative. He's a king. And salvation is flowing through this man's household. If this man falls, if God wipes out this man and his household, what does that say? So there's much on the line here. Today, what I want to do for us is uh, I I want to resist. uh, I'm not going to outline it for us. I want to work through the text today. And in so doing, what I think we will find, and I will highlight as I move along through it, is that out of this text, out of this story, there are going to be three phrases that are going to jump off the page. Okay, of, all, of all that I just read, you probably could say them right now as easily as I could. There are three pa- phrases that jump off the page, and we'll allow those to kind of be the things that settle in our mind coming out of this. So let's just begin where it begins. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, you remember Nathan. Nathan was the prophet who was with David in his house in chapter 7. Nathan is with David in his house when David has the idea of building a house for the Lord. And Nathan, initially agreeing with that, then receives a word from the Lord telling him, no, 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 it's not going to be David. Nathan then communicates to David on behalf of the Lord that David won't build the house, but in fact, David's son will build the house, and yet all of these covenant promises are also given through Nathan uh, from God for David and his household as well. Nathan was sent by the Lord to David. Now, we don't know how long or exactly when in the sequence here, Nathan was sent to David. But in just reading the text, it appears to be that Nathan is at least nine months, right? It appears the child is already born at this point. So nine months along the way, nine months, David has been wallowing to some extent in this king, in this sin. He's probably been going through the motions of kingship during that time, perhaps thinking or wanting to think 
or trying to convince himself somehow that he's gotten away with this, that this will pass, just give it enough time. Time heals all wounds, everything will be okay. I'm not going to say anything about this. Nobody else is going to say anything about this. It wasn't good. Maybe I got away with it. But deep down inside, he has to know that that wasn't true. David knows the Lord well enough to know that that's not true. And so I think we can imagine the, the churning, the gnawing, the unsettledness inside of him that is captured so well in Psalm 32 that we read for our call to worship. For when I kept silent, let us say when I kept silent about my sins, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He hasn't confessed the sin. He hasn't owned up to the sin, and the weight of the Lord is pressing down upon him. But God sends Nathan, the prophet, to him. And from that simple act, what I think we need to see in this very first sentence that might be otherwise easy to read over is to say that God here acts in mercy. This is a merciful step by God to send the prophet to David. David doesn't initiate his confession. He doesn't initiate his repentance. God does. God seeks out his own even when his own try to hide. Right? And this, we'll make this comparison a couple of times and we'll start it right here. Last week, we talked about the comparison between David's sin and the first sin in terms of seeing, desiring, taking. Well, here, there's another comparison that is here where God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Did you eat of the tree? And and what's God doing? He's, He's eliciting confession in mercy. He's eliciting confession to come from Adam about what has taken place. This is God's, let's call it God's confronting mercy. And it precedes and it provides the foundation for what follows. And I think this this is why Psalm 51 starts off in the way that it starts off with, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. In order to come into confession with integrity, with sincerity, with plainness of speech, you have to be pre-convinced of the mercy of God. This is the mercy of God that you have to know is out there as you come into confession, or else you can't do it. You can't do it with all of your heart. David here is a recipient of mercy, even though he certainly doesn't know it at first. And in one sense, what we see here with that simple act where God takes now the initiative, not David, God takes the initiative, is that this story, in as much as it is about David, and it is absolutely about David, it is, if you will, more a story of God. It is more a story of God, the Father, his steadfast love, his mercy, his kindness, his loyalty, his commitment to keep the covenant that he has made with his people through this man. Nathan then, whether at the direct 
guidance of God or whether through simply the wisdom that God had given to him, tells the story. He tells the parable that I've read for us. I don't even need to reread it or explain it to you because the parable, the story, is so clear in and of itself. In so doing, here's what he does, and, and this is I, we can all appreciate this without going into depth on it, I trust. He doesn't come to David and say, David, listen, here's how you've broken the Ten Commandments. Here's your violation of the law of God. Instead, what he does is he goes around David's defenses, okay? Because David has erected defenses, and the defenses have worked. They've held up for whatever, the nine months plus that he's been in this situation to keep him from confessing. That is to say, to keep him from appreciating the depth of his violation. The defenses have held. And the reality is that all of us develop defenses, All of us. David's a believer in the Lord. I want to come back to that because that's where we wrestle. David is a believer in the Lord. And as a man who wrote many of the penitential psalms that we use, many of the psalms of confession, David still knows how to hide. He still knows how to erect a wall. And that can be true for us, a people who come together every week and confess publicly together our sins together, say that this is true of us. We, nevertheless, can have these same types of defenses that are in our lives because we don't like to feel guilty. Nobody likes that feeling. And so you try to build up this whole system by which you can avoid the accusations. Frail and feeble as fig leaves, though they may be, we have them. Nathan sidesteps. He goes around to the back and he stirs up David's righteous indignation. A couple of chapters ago, we read that in establishing the kingdom, David did righteous and equitable by all of the people in the kingdom. And and Nathan taps into that. He taps into something that he knows David loves, and he knows that David has practice. And so David, in hearing the story, he declares the man's guilt. That man deserves to die. He determines the restitution that is necessary. That man has to give fourfold of his estate, has to go to the poor man, And David not only does that, but he discerns the heart of the matter when he says, why is all this taking place? Because that man had no pity. He was pitiless. He was merciless. He was without kindness, without compassion. The only thing needed then, now that he's gotten this report from the prophet, is the identity of the perpetrator. Who is the man? Name him, Nathan, and I'll take care of it. And in one of the most devastating blows, prophetically landed in all of Scripture, Nathan declares, you are the man. You are the man. I don't know how you experience those moments in your life. The blood rushes out. The hands go cold, the shivers run down the spine, everything seems to sink down, at least that's physically the way I would experience that. You are the man. What a moment. David's carefully constructed house 
made of cedar and stone by carpenters and masons that were sent to him by Hiram, king of Tyre, is seen to be a house of cards, and it crumbles. David's kingdom and all of the victories, which seem to be so prevalent, victory after victory, as the Lord leads him in battle, and then all of the garrisons that David had stationed in these various places to make sure that the land, that his kingdom, that his people were secure, those defenses won't hold against the evil that resides in David's own heart. He can defend from the external, perhaps, but he can't defend from the internal, from what has taken place inside. The defenses have been penetrated. You are the man. What a moment of devastation, humiliation, pain, shock, incredulity. And on the one hand, we appreciate this, right? We we appreciate this if, if, as I have said to some of you that were coming up to this chapter, you have said back to me, you are the man. That's the phrase, right? That's the fr- we all know the phrase. There, there's a uniqueness to this moment that is here that we all recognize as well. And yet, for the children of God, it is an essential moment for all of the children of God. I might even say that moments like this are essential moments in our lives, moments when we are utterly undone, moments when we are stripped naked of our defenses and confronted and exposed is our own shameful violation or violations of the covenant law, of love and loyalty, and of the covenant Lord himself. Who is the man? I am the man. Who is the man? I am the man. Not wretched man that you are, wretched man that I am. Not someone else. I'm the man. Nathan continues then in verses 7 through 8 of this chapter. You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you that much more again. That cadence should sound familiar to us. Nathan is using the same cadence that God employed back in chapter 7 as well. He's tying it right back. You remember chapter 7? David says, I'm going to build you a house. God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's clarify. I'm I'm good. I actually don't need help from you. David, uh, pardon me, God says to David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people. I appointed judges for my people, and I will give you rest for all of your enemies. It's the exact same cadence that is used here. 
And David can't help but see the same cadence that is there. Don't you know, David? Don't you realize, David, that all you have is a gift of my grace? You don't have it because you took it. You have it because I gave it. I gave it to you. And I would have given you more. All you had to do was ask, and I would have given to you more. But you took. You took Bathsheba. All you have, I gave to you. You are rich. Nathan then, as this continues, moves back and forth between, if you will, grand statements of how David has violated and what David has done, and then specific allegations as well. Now, they're not allegations. These are, these are just the sentence and the reality of things. Listen, listen to the way it's stated in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Despised the word of the Lord. David is uh, the lover of the word of the Lord, the lover of the law of God. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done that which is evil? And then it's spelled out, right? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And if that's not enough, you killed Uriah. You killed Uriah with the sword of an Ammonite, of all people, of all things to do. Verse 10 continues with this same kind of toggling back and forth. You have despised me. Not just you've despised the word of the Lord. God says, you have despised me in that you took Bathsheba to be your wife. You've despised me. The case against David is ironclad. There's no wiggle room. There's no escape. The crime or the crimes. The crime is clear in all its particulars and all that lays underneath of the particulars. Made all the worse by the person who has committed it. David's not just anybody. He's the king. He's the king in Jerusalem, the city of peace, a city where kings of righteousness have reigned. David is the king who was supposed to execute justice and righteousness and equity on behalf of God for the people of God. David was supposed to keep the law of God. He had the covenant promises he had and was decked with all of the covenant mercy that was there. And the perpetrator, David, has even declared by oath the appropriate sentence, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. So what say you, David? What say you? You've been silent for a while. What do you plead? Verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. No explanation. No justification. No excuse. No pleading the fifth. No... I don't recall exactly what I said in that letter that I sent with Joe. I don't recall it exactly. No playing it down. 
no attempt to say, you know what, it wasn't me. I made this mistake, but that's not who I am really. No saying, the woman whom you put up there when I happened to be out on the balcony the, that evening, you shouldn't have done that, Lord. There's no equivocation. There's no defense. There's no blaming somebody else. Just as he is without one plea, I have sinned against the Lord. It's one thing to be told of your guilt. You are the man. And it's another thing to own it. To own it. This is confession of sin. This is guilt confessed. And it's distilled here to its very essence. It is stated with supreme simplicity. Saul, when confronted, offered explanation. He offered justification. David kept it simple and joined the ranks of those who keep it simple, or I should say this is one of the forerunners of the ranks of people who keep it simple. People like Isaiah who say, woe is me, I am undone. People like a tax collector who come to the temple and beat their breast and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. People like a, a son who has taken his share of his father's estate and gone out and spent it all on revelry and now in desiring to come back at the end of his rope, at the end of his life, has a plan that is hatched to say to his father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's distilling it down to the essence or with Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's a trustworthy saying. David did not say he had no sin. He confessed his sin. And thus, David becomes an example for all of the faithful, for all of the children of God. How do we confess? Confess? From this text, we can say with sincerity, simplicity, and with a broken heart. With sincerity, with simplicity, and with a broken heart. Many of you know that uh, I enjoy reading The Imitation of Christ. It has to be edited as you read it a little bit by Thomas Akempis. And on the first page of The Imitation of Christ is this well-known quote. I would rather feel compunction, compunction, guilt, unease of conscience. I would rather feel compunction than know its definition. Now, I, along with, I hope, many of you can define sin using the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. I am glad to know that definition. But I would rather feel compunction than be able to recite that definition of sin. David felt it, and he stated it. 
The tax collector felt it, and he stated it. The Pharisee didn't feel it. He sought to justify himself, and he ended up as the one who was unjustified. Have you met with people? I met with someone this week who said to me, I keep all of the Ten Commandments. Said it right to me. I keep all the Ten Commandments. I couldn't believe it. I thought, well, good for you. That's terrific. You're the only person I know. So we confess with sincerity, simplicity, and a broken heart. And by the way, if you, parenthetical comment, if you don't have a broken heart over your sin, just confess that as well. Don't get all tied up in knots over that. Confess that as well. It's part of the sinful fallen nature that we have. But to see the brevity that is here in our text doesn't mean that we can't also practice the intensity and the reflectiveness that we see in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's own expansion of this confession, his own exposition of his own confession. Psalm 51 takes what is here. This is a six-word statement in English, right? I have sinned against the Lord. Six-word statement. It's actually just two words in Hebrew. Just two words in Hebrew. I, I can't even somehow run that all together. Sinned against the Lord. Sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 takes two words in Hebrews, in Hebrew and turns it into a 19-verse song. Sung. Preciously treasured and repeated by saints throughout history. The worst period in his life, he cranks it open and says, I've got to write about this for the sake of everybody. Everybody has to know. Everybody has to be able to sing this together with me. But what we can say with confidence is that whether short or long, confession begins with an apprehension of mercy, and then it makes its plea with a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. So two phrases have left off the page for us. You are the man, and I have sinned against the Lord. And now the third, also in verse 13. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The wages of sin is death. David deserved to die. Came right out of his own mouth. David deserved death. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Hear it, brothers and sisters. Put away your sin. Passed over your sin sin, forgiven your sin, washed your sin, cleansed your sin. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. David had tried to cover his iniquity before. He had tried to avoid it. Send back to Joab word 
Remember that in the last, send back to Joab word. Joab, these things happen. Don't let it, don't let it get you down. Send back word. David had tried to minimize it. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 118, the psalmist sings, I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And while that song could be sung in any number of circumstances and situations, it can certainly be sung here. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. How can that be? How can it be? Is that it? Is that all it takes? Just, just this kind of statement? Is this fair? Is this just? Is God just ignoring what happened? Hardly. David, his children, his wife, his wives, the nation will experience the devastation of this sin for years to come. But all of that, all of that, all of the devastation that is to come, and all of the sincerity and all of the brokenheartedness and all of the words that David could possibly say in this moment, they would not be enough. Could David's zeal, no respite, no. Could David's tears forever flow? All for sin, for his sin could not atone. God must save, and God alone. The only way that David's life is preserved, both at this moment and for eternity, is through the death and the life of his son. Now, we've already had it told to us that it's going to take place. We haven't read of it yet. But we know that the child from this union is going to die. We also know that in this chapter, or perhaps you don't know, but in this chapter, just a little later on, Bathsheba will conceive and give birth to Solomon. There's going to be a son in this chapter who dies. There's going to be a son in this chapter who lives. But they can't atone. They can't atone. They're not an atoning offering. They're not come some kind of sacrifice that David himself might live. They are not enough. They are not substitutes. It is the promised son of David on whom the guilt of David's sin will be laid. How does David live? David lives because of David's great, 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 great son who will bear the guilt of this sin, who will wear the guilt of this sin, the death and the life of the promised son of David is the only way that David lives. How David survives here is told to us in chapter 7. 
In chapter 7, God says, I will not remove my steadfast love. I will not remove it. That is the covenant that I am making with you. Had that statement not been made, David would have been ended right here. God would have ended him, ended the line. God promised, I won't do it. There's someone coming from you upon whom will rest all of the sins. And when they all rest on him, I will discipline him. I will chastise that one, but I won't take my love from him. I won't. I won't take my steadfast mercy, my faithfulness, my covenant loyalty. I won't take it from that one. David survives 2 Samuel 11 and 12 because of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the son that was promised there. The steadfast love, the mercy of the Lord is secured for David in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. The Lord put away your sin by putting it on the Lamb of God. That's how he put it away, David. So, how bad is your sin? How bad is it? How bad is the sin that is around you? The declaration of Scripture is that you can be made whiter than snow. That in Jesus Christ and through his blood, you can be made whiter than snow. Who is the man? David is the man. You are the man. I am the man. Isaiah turns the portrait just a little bit, and the Lord looks, and he looks at humanity. He looks out across the sea of us, and he's astonished that there's no one, there's no justice, and there's no man. There's no man, or if you will, every man is the man in this case. And so his own arm works salvation. And he put on salvation as a helmet and a breastplate of righteousness across him. And the eternal son became the son of David as he took on flesh. He became the man, the mediator, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He took our sin upon himself that we might not die, but live. So here's where this ends up, and it's a hard journey. Confession begins with an apprehension of the mercy of God. It continues as a broken and contrite heart declares back to God the things that are true. But it doesn't stay there, because it gets to the end And the end is that that sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You shall not die because he died. You shall live because he lives. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is ridiculously amazing grace. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be inheritors of such grace. It is not pleasant for us to wallow in this mire, but it's true. It's a confronting mercy that you give to us by including these things in your word because it draws us in utter and complete dependence to you and casts us upon you. And so we are, and so we are glad to be because there's nothing in us. There's nothing in our hands we can bring, nothing we can offer. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.